This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages Alan Redpath presented on the Christian life at MBI Founders Week Bible Conference 1969 and 1982. Alan Redpath was a British evangelist, author, and former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during the 1950s. Now, here is Alan Redpath on Today in the Word radio. Now, will you turn with me this evening to the epistle to the Philippians in the second chapter? Philippians chapter 2. I am taking the liberty of reading the first 11 verses of this chapter in the Living Letters paraphrase. The message will be based on the King James Version. Philippians chapter 2, the paraphrase of Living Letters. Is there any such thing as Christians cheering each other up? Do you love me enough to want to help me? Does it mean anything to you that we are brothers in the Lord sharing the same spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic at all? Then make me truly happy by loving each other and agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, working together with one heart and mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and in what they are doing. Try to be like Jesus Christ, who, though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God, but laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as to actually die a criminal's death on a cross. Yet... It was because of this that God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. And I ask you to echo in your heart the prayer which I offer on your behalf and on mine. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Speak just now. Some message to meet my need which thou only dost know. Speak now through thy holy word and make me see some wonderful truth thou hast to show to me. For Jesus' sake. Amen. If you stop to think about it, one of the most amazing things that's happened in this century is the comparative collapse of that principle of government which at the outbreak of the century was hailed as that which would produce a utopia on earth. I mean the principle of government known as democracy. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. This was going to the answer of to the problems of all the world. New nations emerging in Africa and other parts are finding that they need something different. And the countries which stick to democratic principles of government have their back to the wall. Now I find this very interesting indeed. Because one of the founders of the communist regime was Lenin. And in his thesis on communism, which was unheard of at the beginning of the century, but which has now one-third of the world's population under its control and a great measure of authority and influence in the rest of the world population, Lenin said it is absolutely impossible to imagine that the transition from capitalism to socialism can ever take place without dictatorship. And he knew what he was talking about. And the thing that intrigues me about this is that the whole principle of Christian living is never democracy, but always dictatorship. Not the cruel horrible thing that we have come to see practiced in the world, not the Hitler concentration camp, but the unquestioned supremacy and sovereignty of Jesus Christ in a human life. This is the very genius of the Christian faith. And those who practice or think they can practice lip service to the Lord and have a perfectly nominal faith and get away with it and be perfectly happy are sadly disillusioned. For they find their Christian experience to be defeat and misery. 
Now I want to speak to you tonight as the Holy Spirit shall enable me on the place that Jesus Christ has in your life. Is he Lord? Does he come first? Is he second? Is he third? Or, may I say it reverently, is he only one of the also rands? When it comes down to it and the chips are down, down to earth, daily living, seven days a week, is Jesus Christ sovereign in your heart? Nobody can be expected to hand over the control of their lives to somebody else unless they are satisfied that that person is worthy of such a position and is in himself adequate for it. This pa passage which I have read to you tonight is, I think, one of the most wonderful passages in the Word of God where Jesus Christ substantiates and claims his right of sovereignty over all of our lives. You remember that in the 110th Psalm, God said unto our Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make all thine enemies thy footstool. You remember that the writer to the Hebrews begins that wonderful epistle with the tremendous statement that God has spoken to us in these last days in his Son, who, being the express image of his person and the outshining of his glory, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So, no matter what you or I may think about it, God has put Jesus on the throne. Now, what is the basis of that? What right has Jesus to that position? He has the undisputed right to sovereignty because of who he is and because of what he has done. In the letter to the Philippians here, as Paul speaks of it, I like to think of this passage as a ladder down which he came step by step in order to execute heaven's missionary program. And a ladder up which he went in order to administrate his authority for all time and eternity. I want you very reverently and quietly to think with me tonight about how Jesus came down and how he went up and what right he had to be the sovereign ruler of the whole universe and the unquestioned ruler of your life and mine. Let us watch him as he stepped down from glory. Do you notice 
And we begin at the top of the ladder. That being in the form of God. Here we see him where he was by right from the very beginning. Much more than like God. Sometimes we speak of a child being the image of his father. But that child and that father are two different people. Jesus is much more than that. He shared the nature of God. His was from the very beginning the essential character of deity. He always had been and always would be God. Whatever were the conditions and the circumstances of his appearances in the Old Testament, in the form of an angel of the Lord, he was God. At the bush in Exodus chapter 3, as the angel who appeared to Moses, he was God and demanded the worship of the one who was to lead his people. As a soldier with the sword drawn in his hand, who was to decide the strategy for the capture of Canaan and who appeared to Joshua, he was God. Take thy shoe from off thy foot, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy. And when he came down to Bethlehem, in his incarnation, he brought his deity with him. He never used the title. When he was down here, he called himself the Son of Man. But that essential deity could never leave him. He thought it not robbery, says the scripture, to be equal with God. In other words, he wasn't taking to himself something that didn't belong to him. When he claimed to be equal with God, nor did he feel he had to cling to it lest he lost it. He was God by sovereign right. As Living Letter says, though he was God, he did not demand or cling to his rights as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the disgusted accusation of the Jew was he made himself equal with God. Now there, very briefly, Jesus is at the top of the ladder. And my friend, when you know who Jesus is, you think of him more reverently. He isn't just the man upstairs. You don't sing these syncopated, jazzy choruses. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it is his presence that makes this meeting sacred, momentous, strategic, something which can alter the character and destiny of many people listening to this program because we meet in the presence of God. So we begin with putting him where he ought to be, on the throne. But then I read that he made himself of no reputation. Can you imagine a king desiring to travel incognito, divesting himself of everything that would give him away? He would still be king, but he would have emptied himself of his royal apparel. I think that that is a faint reflection of Philippians 2. He emptied himself would be the correct rendering of that verse. Not of his deity, but of his glory. Stripping himself of all signs of his majesty. He made himself of no reputation. He never used his deity here for his benefit. For he came as truly man, not pretending to be man, but truly so. For all that, there were occasions when it flashed out on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers fell onto the ground when he used his name, I Am. He who thought it not robbery to claim equality with God thought it not forgery to sign his signature before Abram was, I am. And so he emptied himself and suffered himself to be limited to a human body. And Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom. I am sure that even at school he made no mistakes. All that heard him were astonished at his answers. At his bench in a carpenter's shop, his work was perfect. I cannot imagine any piece of imperfect work ever leaving that bench. He was called the carpenter of Nazareth in a day when carpenters were to a penny. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. Now notice the next step. He took upon him the form of a servant. A servant? Yes, a bond slave. A servant? Who to? Well, to God. Behold my servant, my chosen, the one in whom my soul delighteth. I delight to do thy will, O God. He came to be the servant of Jehovah. But not only of God, but of us. At the moment when he took from himself the royal apparel of deity, he clothed himself with the apron of a servant. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Do you remember that on one occasion he took a towel and wiped the feet of his disciples. 
The custom was, as you know, for a guest who walked into a room from a dusty road to hold his foot over a basin, and a servant would rinse it. But there was no slave there, and the disciples hadn't learned humility to do it for each other, so the Lord did it for them. Just at that very moment, when he did it, he was conscious of his deity. For John tells us that knowing that he came from God and that he went to God, he took a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. Here where the father stepped down. Not merely like a man as an individual, but like all men, a representative man. He went to the cross not merely as a man, but as all men. He died for all. He was made in the likeness of man. He didn't play at being a man. He was a man, as truly man as he was truly God. Think of the evidence in Scripture for this. He was hungry when driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He was hungry. And he was tempted. And he was tired and weary. One of the early railway engineers in Britain who designed the steam engine was a man of the name of George Stevenson. At his funeral, a procession of workmen carried a banner which said, He was one of us. He rose from our ranks. And I look up to the throne in heaven and how thankfully I say, My Jesus, he was one of us. He came down to our ranks. He was made in the likeness of man. Come down a further step. He humbled himself. The highest place that heaven affords was his by sovereign right. But he chose a humble lot, a poor cottage, a lowly mother, a poor trade. At birth, he borrowed a cradle. In life, Nowhere to lay his head. In death, a borrowed tomb. And it always seems to have been the principle of his choice of those who were to serve him. For you remember that the Apostle Paul said in writing to the Corinthian church, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world, weak things, base things, despised, things which are not, for no flesh shall glory in his presence. He doesn't put up with such, he chooses them. For the praise must always go to God and not to men. What a shattering reversal of human form today all this is. Shattering reversal of Christian ideas. 
I think, for example, of that amazing story of Gideon. How do we go about a task? Oh, I'll tell you how we do. We think of a super idea. We get as many men behind it as possible, especially wealthy men, and have as much money to back it and drive it home, and we sprinkle it all with a little prayer, and we shake it all well together, and put it in a high-pressured oven to bake, and wait for the explosion. And what is God's method? Take 32,000 men, send away 22,000 of them who are afraid and press the panic button, send away another 9,700 who are undisciplined and wallow all over the ground to drink. The remainder, 300 men, expendable, usable, the Lord can use. Oh, this is the way that Jesus took. Always reducing a man to the minimum in order that he might do through him the maximum. He humbled himself. So much so that they said of him, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. What a lie that second part of that statement is. Himself he cannot save. Of course he could. One flash of deity and he could have descended from the cross. How true the first part of the statement is. He saved others. He lived and died for others. Therefore he could not save himself. Take a further step down. He became obedient unto death. All of us know a great deal these days about the theology, or hear a lot about it, that God is dead. And all of us know that it isn't true. But he was dead. For three days he was dead. He was obedient unto death. Why couldn't he be raptured like Enoch and like Elijah? Or as every living Christian will be when Jesus comes again? No. For by his suffering of death, he showed obedience up to the hilt. And a verse which in my judgment throws a whole flood of light on the whole teaching of the word of God. Romans 5.19 As by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall the many be made righteous. He was obedient unto death. Is he at the bottom of the ladder? Not quite. He's one more rung to reach. Even the death of the cross. Not a lovely crucifix. Not a golden cross on the dome of some cathedral, but a Roman gibbet on common, cruel, criminal crucifixion ground. 
And I believe that any artist who attempts to beautify Calvary does it to severe injustice. It's the biggest likeness to a slaughterhouse the world has ever known. Three crosses were there at the time, two of them for thieves, one for a murderer. But in fact, the one designed for a murderer was occupied by our Lord. And he says of himself in Psalm 22, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Now he's touched bottom. See, God, man, worm. That's Jesus. Nobody can get lower than that. Oh, the distance he came. Right down as he touched rock bottom. As I think of it all, in my heart, I find myself saying two wonders I confess. The wonder of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. Ah, but God didn't leave him there. He's down the ladder now, right to the very bottom. God has become man, and not content with that, he's likened himself to a worm. Now, watch him go up. Three mighty steps, and he's up where he belongs. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him. You notice, he humbled himself. He didn't exalt himself. He humbled himself, but God exalted him. Oh, by the exercise of his deity, he could have exalted himself, but no, he didn't. For the sake of justice, for the evidence of our salvation, God must give a final indication that the one sacrifice of our Lord was a full and sufficient sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. So God raised him from the dead and declared him to be the Son of God with power, up from the tomb in a mighty resurrection, up to the skies in a mighty ascension, up to the throne in heaven in a tremendous session, sitting on the right hand of God till all his enemies become his footstool. That's my Jesus. That's your Lord. And God hath given him a name which is above every name. And that name is Christ, is Jesus. That statement may mean that he's exalted to the highest place in all the universe. But it also means that the name or the character of Jesus is the one which God has put on the throne. The obedient one, the one who made himself of no reputation, the one who humbled himself, the one who's obedient unto death. God wouldn't allow him to stay dead. This same Jesus whom ye have crucified, God hath raised to his right hand, hath made both Lord and Christ. A drunken sailor who later occupied one of the great Anglican pulpits in London after his conversion.
John Newton wrote those lovely words, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. God has given him that name that is above every name. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, in his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Oh my, what a day when the atheist tongue, the pagan's tongue, the blasphemer's tongue, Hitler's tongue, everyone's tongue shall confess him Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is his claim for sovereignty. Oh, I wish I had the words of an archangel to put it to you. But I put it inadequately. And yet in my heart I thrill. As I know this Jesus is Lord of all the universe. Undisputed, recognized in heaven, acknowledged in hell. But disputed on earth. The claim for lordship. I remember at the English Keswick Convention many years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse preached a dynamic sermon on the subject, the way to up is down. And Jesus was the first one to show us that, that the way to up to the throne is down to the cross. Now, the strategy of this is that in being Lord of a new humanity who by the new birth are experiencing day by day his administration, his authority, his sovereignty, we are to display to the world in which we live the happiness and the thrill and the joy and the reality and the freedom and liberty of a life lived under the domination of the Jesus Christ as Lord. So I want to speak to you, if I may, about the implications of this in your life and mine. And say to you first, that if Jesus Christ is Lord, then he faces us with this principle of life, which means absolute entire submission. My will is not my own until I make it mine. It cannot reach the monarch's throne until itself resign. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, said Jesus. This means the essence of sin is not what I do, but something I am by nature, is I. And the beginning of my salvation is when I experience a new sovereignty. When I submit my life in its entirety to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now I want to suggest to you, my friend, that the breakdown, the tragic breakdown of Christianity today 
is because most of us are trying to live on the principle of democracy. I have never really, really learned that from the very start, Christianity is dictatorship. Why call ye me Lord and don't do what I tell you, said Jesus. A man who is submitted to the Lordship of Christ recognizes that he has no rights. Have you ever heard people say, I had a perfect right to be consulted on my church board about that situation. Nobody ever consulted me. I'm going to resign. I had a right to have my views heard on the field council, on the mission field. I was not consulted. I'm going home. I had a right to state my view. But they wouldn't listen to me. I'm quitting. You have a right? Jesus counted it not a thing to be grasped after, to be equal with God. He forsook all his rights to save us. What right have I except to do his will? Surrender to Jesus Christ means the end of my rights. You know, worship is not good enough in itself. If it isn't followed by submission and obedience, it's meaningless. Oh, we can sing the Hallelujah Chorus and sing Handel's Messiah and sing of him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And our hearts thrill with it. But if this isn't being carried out in day-by-day obedience of living, do you know what we are? And this is not my word, it's Jesus' word, hypocrites. That's all. And there's nothing so awful as a religious hypocrite. Who worships, who sings, who serves, but doesn't obey. The Christian life means submission. And following submission, it means a lifetime of obedience. Not obedience in order to get converted, but obedience because I am converted. Obedience because I'm his. Obedience because I'm displaying in submission to Jesus Christ the reality of a life that walks with God. You and I, dear friend, live in a generation which has set at its goal the removal of all kind of authority at every level. Racial rights, university rights, are all seeking to obtain this objective. When a modern 20th century society has decided to be lawless and have no authority and just live absolutely free. In that society, you and I live as Christians. And we are called upon not to play church, not to play God, not to play a religion, but to demonstrate by our lives seven days a week the sheer liberty, the sheer thrill, the sheer joy of living in absolute obedience 
the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life, James calls it, the law of liberty. And law is a rule which one person lays down to another. The one having the right to exercise authority over him. And the Christian life is to issue in a life of holiness, in a life of such a quality of purity as is regulated by the Ten Commandments, developed in the Sermon on the Mount, in the power of the indwelling Christ who administers the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in the throne in heaven, in the throne in your heart. Obedience. Not by my effort, but by his mighty power. The Lordship of Christ means that. It means also ownership. What? Know ye not that you are not your own? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You are bought for the price. Your body belongs to him. It's his. It's his temple. He lives in it. He's come to administer by his spirit the sovereignty of Christ. Maybe that's what we haven't understood. But the crowning of Christ as Lord opens our heart to the incoming of the power of the Spirit of God who always comes into the life that is surrendered to Jesus in order that he may establish the rule of the king in my heart. And this body is his temple. When I was born again, he came to live in it. To dictate the strategy, to call the plays, to give the orders, to dictate his commands, and to expect from me implicit obedience in the power that he gives me. No, you're not. You're not your own. You belong to another. And the other to whom you belong is the one who stepped down all those runs and made himself of no reputation, became a worm that he might lift you out from sin and lift you up into his presence, into his heart, and love you and live through you and demonstrate to men today that the greatest thrill and the greatest reality of all the world is a man who is indwelt by God. Friend, what are you doing with the body in which you live? You are not your own. Have you ever written down on paper the areas of your life which may have never been yielded to him? You are not your own. Your business is not your own. Your friends are not your own. Your career is not your own. You are not your own. Nothing belongs to you. It's all his. Have you recognized his right of ownership? And you of his claims to sovereignty? Have you recognized that here tonight we meet in this place 
No one of us lives to himself, nor do we die to ourselves. For whether we did live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. And that body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, forgive me, is it a playground of the devil? Is it really under the Spirit's control? Is it because you find yourself weak and beaten time and time again because you're pulled down by the desires of the flesh that your Christian life is silent and your Christian testimony has gone from you? There's no reality in it, no joy in it. Well, Jesus would remind you tonight that you don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. And he paid an infinite price in order that he might live in you and transform you and make you into his likeness. But uh, for him, so it is for me. The way to up... Is down. I would like to take you as I close in my mind to a little corner of southeast England, a little town called Ramsgate. And in Winston Churchill's war memoirs, in one of them called Britain's Finest Hour, there was a little company of Air Force men in a canteen at Ramsgate and an airbase. Six pilots, six gunners, all that were left of a whole squadron of planes. These men hadn't had their clothes off for two or three weeks. Dirty, unshaven, tired, exhausted, bleary-eyed, smoking, drinking coffee. Suddenly, a message comes from Air Force headquarters. Enemy approaching over channel. Estimated strength, 500. Those 12 men leapt to the feet, dashed for the planes. One of them paused just long enough to say, message received and understood. Obedience. Oh, nobody questioned it. Nobody doubted it. And in a minute, six planes, all that were left, went up into the air to fight 500. It was total war. And if you think, my friend, we're engaged in anything less than that throughout the world today, you've got it all wrong. I tell you, Britain and America have got to stop playing at church and recognize that we're in total war against an enemy who's crowding on full sail in these last days before Jesus comes. Whose side are you on? Have you declared yourself openly on his side? Are you here? By right of sovereignty, by right of Calvary, by right of resurrection, he's your Lord. Have you acknowledged that right? Does he own you, possess you, control you, live through you?
or you're healed without question. Can it be said of you? Message received and understood. Shall we pray? Oh God our Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ thy Son, do thou somehow get glory to thy name here tonight in lives that are utterly yielded to the control of the one who became man, the one who was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and the one who has been raised to thy right hand till all thine enemies become his footstool. Lord Jesus, may it be unquestioned obedience from all our hearts. And may we declare that we are utterly and altogether and completely on the Lord's side. We ask it for his sake. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message Alan Redpath presented on The Christian Life at MBI Founders Week Bible Conference 1969 and 1982. Alan Redpath was a British evangelist, author, and former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during the 1950s. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.